Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, the original additive manufacturing podcast and your source for news, interviews and comment on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence. Brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm joined by Adrian Bowyer, the founder of the RepRap Movement and the TTT Hall of Fame. Boya, a former mechanical engineering academic, came to prominence within the 3D printing world around 20 years ago, when he shared a blog on the Bath University website detailing the idea for a replicating rapid prototype. Once published, he was encouraged to take the lead on the project, and what came next was a movement that attracted the support of hobbyists and consumerists all over the world. Throughout today's episode, Boya discusses the motivations behind the wet rap movement, how the wet rap machines evolved through the generations, and the decision to sell off the wet rap pro business. He also provides his assessment of the desktop printer market that spawned from the wet rap movement, and how AI might impact 3D printing. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more Amazon Insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly Additive Insight newsletter for free. Adrian, welcome to the Additive Insight podcast. Our listeners will know you best um, for your role in, in the rep rap movement, but can you give yeah. us some background on you and your career prior to 2005 uh, to get started? Yeah, sure. Uh, I studied mechanical engineering at Imperial College in London and then went on to do a PhD there in the mechanism of friction and friction vibration. Um, So my daughter introduces me by saying, this is Dr. Bowyer, he has a PhD in squeaks. Um, So, um, and then I moved into doing research in mathematics at Bath University. Uh, Then I moved into the department of Bath University then I moved back into engineering again and ended up as a senior academic in the engineering department, still at Bath. Okay, and can you tell us then how the the RepRap story begins? How did that whole project come about? You know, what was the motivation for, for doing it? Well, I've known about 3D printing since the 1970s um, when the idea first appeared as a joke. Um, though actually I subsequently discovered that that wasn't the first appearance and I can tell you about that if you want it goes right back to the 1930s but that's another matter. A joke by David Jones writing as Daedalus in The New Scientist where he proposed setting a liquid monomer using laser light to form solid objects um, which is the essence of stereolithography of course. Um, Anyway uh, I hadn't done anything with it except know about its existence until the turn of the century when the government awarded my university a very large equipment grant um, and the university perhaps foolishly gave, gave it to me or at least a chunk of it spent and I bought for the first time in my own university two 3D printers uh, one of them cost a quarter of a million pounds the other cost about 40,000 um, pounds and as soon as these arrived and I started using them I realized how incredibly versatile they were and in particular how it suddenly made manufacturing objects rather like writing documents have been made with a word processor where you've got a word processor it's really easy to create a document much more easy than it was with a typewriter and even more easy than than writing by hand of course and pretty much the same thing happened when i got hold of 3d printers um and 
because of the versatility of these machines and the fact that they can produce more complicated geometry than pretty much any single other manufacturing process, I also realized that there was a chance that the machines could print a significant proportion of their own parts. So I thought, well, let's make a 3D printer that will print 3D printers. And I realized right from the beginning that uh, it wouldn't be able to print every last bit of itself. I thought we'd probably have to add in the electronics and the motors, for example, from outside. Um, so uh, I started this project. Um, I, it, I, in fact, when I say I started, I put the idea out there. I put the idea in a document on the university's website. Um, and I was a bit busy at the time, so I didn't start the project. But all my colleagues came to me and said, well, why don't you do it? So then I did start it, <laughs> basically, because they beat me about the head with a rolled up newspaper to get me to do it. Um, I applied for a search grant to do it, which was half the cost of the cheaper 3D printer that I bought, which was then the cheapest machine that you could buy. I wanted to show that I could do the entire project for less than the cost of a single machine at the bottom of the market at the time. Um, now that's a bit of a cheat because I also had a, as it were, a free research student. He was a guy who got an excellent degree and so therefore he was awarded a research grant to do whatever research project he wanted to do and he came on board to assist me with it so I didn't have to pay for that. So I got an extra free pair of hands and I got this research grant which was about £20,000 uh, and we started making the machine. And Around about 2008, uh, you may be able to quote the exact date back to me, I don't know, uh, we managed to get the first version of it working um, together with not only my student, but a whole bunch of other volunteers from all over the world. OK, so when you bought those those first two 3D printers, <clears throat> yep. how far did you think you could get with a 3D printer printing a, another 3D printer? Did you think at that stage this actually is possible or were you kind of <clears throat> just seeing how far you would get how how you know realistic at that time did you think 3d printing a 3d printer was going to be i i think my my thoughts at the time were that it, the the question you posed was really a question of proportionality um it would be obvious to anyone i think that a 3d could print one part of itself um it's certain it was almost equally obvious that a 3d printer can't print 100% of the parts of itself Certainly at the time it couldn't. Um, so the question is, what percentage in between were we going to end up with? And when I started the project, I thought, because I really didn't know, uh, the best guess when you really don't know is to go for about 50% and see what you do. Anyway, uh, not counting nuts and bolts, which uh, of which there were an awful lot, the first machine that we made, which we called RepRap Darwin, um, printed about 60% of its own parts by count. So um, we beat the 50%, but not by an enormous margin. And that seemed to me to be, I, I wasn't surprised when when that, that happened. Um, mm -hmm. I was surprised that the project took off, but I wasn't surprised that we succeeded in making it work. Uh, the reason I was surprised the project took off is because most university research projects don't actually go anywhere, as you're probably aware. So. Obviously, you mentioned the, the funding there. You, you wanted to you know, prove that it could be done for less than the cost of the cheapest 3D printing on the market, <clears throat> um, which you mentioned was, a, was around £40,000. At the time, yes. At By the, the end time. of the project, it was, they were cheaper, of course. Yeah. Of Sorry, course, no. yeah. Um, <clears throat> were there concerns in terms of the funding as you kind of progressed through this? Did you ever think, oh, actually, we're going to need more than, than we already had? No, no. Uh, we, we work within the budget. Um, and uh, we, uh, I, as you 
probably know these things are fairly carefully accounted because it's uh, government money. Um, and uh, we, we managed to work within it. We, uh, one of the things you have to do when you apply for these research grants is to put together a Gantt chart of what you're going to spend where and what work you're going to do and which week of the project and all this sort of thing. Um, we didn't stick all that closely to that, but having gone through the discipline of at least working it out, we managed to get the project to go within its budget that had been allocated. Mm. And before you embarked on the project, did you have any experience in terms of putting a <clears throat> a machine together, you know, like a a manufacturing well, machine per se, like a machine that can make things. Had you, had you or your colleagues had experience of that? Well, uh, in, previously I'd been a senior lecturer in manufacturing in the university, and at the time that I started the project, I'd moved into our biomimetics research group, which is a research group concerned with moving ideas out of evolved nature into engineering. Um, classic examples of biomimetic inventions are things like Velcro, for example, which was based right. on. The way that teasels stick to people's clothes. Um, so um, I rep rap was in a way combining those two things, my background in manufacturing engineering and the fact that I was making a machine that copies itself. Um, biology is the study of things that copy themselves and so if we're going to move biological ideas into engineering I guess that's the variable for most fundamental one. Um, so I was reasonably confident particularly given the extraordinarily good research student that I got working on the project, a guy called Ed Sells, um, that, uh, that the whole thing uh, could be made to work physically. So that didn't present too many problems. Plus, uh, I've mentioned all the volunteers we got from all over the world uh, working on the project. They were an enormous help as well. And, and perhaps we, you might want to, uh, we might want to discuss sort of where they came from, as it were. And that was going to be one of my questions, yeah. So you mentioned before that it you know, this research project took off. Yeah. How exactly did it take off? What, obviously some of the things you weren't in control of, but what did you guys do um, at the university to kind of spread the word about it? And then how did things develop from there? Well, uh, the, the three things really caused it to take off, though I didn't anticipate that it would before those three things were put in train. Um, the first thing was that uh, I thought, well, I'm going to make a machine that copies itself. Um, I should at least tell people about it because that sounds like a reasonably, ra reasonably radical thing to do, um, which is not to say the idea of machines that copy themselves hadn't prece preceded the start of the project. Uh, the idea of a machine copying itself goes right back to René Descartes. Um, but um, I got the university's press department to put out a press release on what we intended to do um, and that got picked up by some quite big publications, the BBC, New York Times, um, uh, publications in Canada, New Zealand, India, all over. Um, and as a result of that, I got requests for interviews, not unlike this one. Um, and uh, that sort of generated further publicity. Uh, the other thing that um, that I decided was that I decided to open source the project um, and the, I did that for two reasons these are sort of the two reasons that follow on from that first reason that I mentioned in total um, I decided to open source it because it seemed to me that if you're going to make what's potentially a very powerful device a self-copying machine um, what you don't want to do is to restrict its use to a small group of people because that's obviously going to increase inequality and the only way to avoid that is to give it to everyone. Um, uh, and so that was my first impulse 
to in, in making it open source and free. The second impulse to doing the same thing was that, well, if you've got a machine that copies itself, um, you can't really sort of patent it or anything, because what you're saying, if you try and patent a machine that copies itself, is that you people can't do with this machine the one thing it was intended to do, uh, which is obviously crazy. So the nature of self-copying sort of forces you to open source things. Now, I realize that there are patents to self-copying things, particularly seeds from companies like Monsanto and so on. But nonetheless, um, that seemed to me to be a reasonably good argument for open sourcing the machine. So those three together caused large, a large number of people to get in touch with me and say, hey, we'd like to contribute to your open source project. Um, and they were extremely useful, those people, because of, and I think there was, it was the case that at one point I was running the largest research group of any university research project in the UK um, in terms of the number of people working on it. Uh, with the added advantage that I was only paying one, my research student. So, um, uh, they, as I say, the rest of them were all volunteers. Mm. I want to pick on a, a, you know, a couple of things there. The, the first is yeah. the idea of open sourcing it and not wanting to, you know, patent anything. Yeah. How much of a challenge was it, you know, in terms of making sure that you weren't compromising other patents that had already been filed? Because obviously we. 2005 through to 2010, yeah. I suppose some of those early 3D printing patents were beginning to expire, but I imagine you still had to be careful of not infringing on anything as you kind of worked through the development of these machines. I, I didn't, uh, it turned out that um, the, the, the way the patents fell was very fortuitous, but I didn't actually have to be careful about that at all because under European and UK patent law, um, anybody is allowed to use any patented technology they like for researching improvements in it. That's right. a fair use exception. So I wasn't concerned about the patent. Obviously, I looked up the patents and checked on them and so on. But I wasn't concerned about the patents because I knew I had a legal exemption as a researcher trying to develop an improvement in the technology. But it turned out that the key patent, which was the Stratasys FDM patent, which was the technology that we ended up using for the machine, um, uh, was going to expire at about the time the project was due to finish. Now, that was an entire coincidence. I didn't plan mm -hmm. it that way at all. Uh, it just turned out when we looked at it, that was the case. So uh, when we released the designs for the first machine, um, the patent was no longer something that was going to impinge upon them. Okay. And um, the other one was, as you open source and you have this very large community of people um, involved and you, you have a blog, I think, to communicate with that community, were you, you know, open source by nature, you're, you're sharing, but are you sharing the things that didn't work as well as the things that did at that stage? How did the, you know, what did the sharing actually look like in, in its entirety? What were the details you were sharing? What were you not sharing? And were you sharing the things that didn't work as well as the things that did? My subjective recollection is that about 80% of the things we shared didn't work. Um, <laughs> uh, we share we, we the basic rule of the project was whenever anybody thinks of anything no matter how insane uh, stick it on the blog uh, right. the reason for that of course is that immediately that puts it in the public domain establishes prior art and stops anybody else from patenting it um, um so it didn't matter that some of the ideas that we put on the blog were, were fairly crazy um, and that some of them never got used, even though they might have worked. Um, we put everything out there that we possibly could just to prevent 
uh, others patenting because it established the fact that we got it as prior art. Um, so uh, yeah, it uh, we 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 didn't we didn't keep anything back. Um, there there's the documentation aspect of the whole project. We put that on a wiki. Uh, there's the software that needed to drive the machine was needed to drive the machine, and we put that um, uh, initially on. Uh, but sorry, ultimately that ended up on GitHub. Um, and um, there's obviously the mechanical design for the machine, uh, which we used a variety of open source um, 3D design systems for, um, Art of Illusion, Blender, FreeCAD, and so on. Um, all of those are free. Um, as far as the design for the electronics is concerned, we used, I'm never sure whether it's pronounced KiCad or KiCad. Anyway, uh, that's an entirely open source electronics design uh, package and of course uh, the whole thing was developed under Linux um, using Linux compilers and so on for the software so we used open source tools throughout in addition to open sourcing the entire project. Right okay and obviously as you went through this project there are generations of of machine that you're developing I think by 2010 the, the Huxley machine was developed can yeah. you Give some detail about the the makeup of these machines, generation by generation. What did you what what kind of did the machine look like in the first iteration, and and what had it what did it look like by you know I don't know year three, four, five when you'd really got into the project? Okay, the first machine we made was essentially a, a, a cube shaped machine about half a meter on a side. Uh, that was a rep wrap Darwin, which I mentioned previously. Uh, anybody who wants to see that, it's now on display in the London Science Museum. Um, so um, uh, part part of their their engineering uh, display uh, display display gallery. Um, the that machine worked, um, and it allowed us to develop a lot of the ideas. Uh, then, and it was designed largely by Ed Sells, whom I mentioned, my research student. Uh, the next machine we designed was in the form of a triangular prism, which was Retrat Mendel. We named all these things after biologists for the obvious reason. Uh, Gregor Mendel in that case. Um, Retrat Mendel, as I say, um, and that was subsequently much simplified, the design of that by Joe Prusser. Um, and then my research student, uh, Ed, again designed the Huxley machine, which you just mentioned. Um, which was basically a very small version of the Mendel, which was so compact that it could literally fit in a corner of one's desk, leaving one enough space to carry on doing all the rest of one's work. Um, and uh, that was the sort of way it went. But one of the things about the design of the machines is that we have uh, a set uh, timetable of progress for going from one to the next. Um, and lot, there were lots of people on the project who were volunteers, as I mentioned. And the general rule was, is if, if you want to design your own machine or a group of you do, or if you've got another idea and you want to follow that up and the mainstream and not following that up, then go ahead and do it. And going back to Charles Darwin again, uh, we'll let Darwinian selection decide among the various alternatives to see which ones come out uh, on, on top. And as you kind of, you know, did that and, you know, encouraged those people involved to try out their ideas as well. On the kind of industrial side of, of 3D printing industry, there's a lot of um, discourse about the repeatability of, of the processes, the, yeah. the quality of the parts as they come off of the machine and after they've gone through post-processing. Were you encountering some of these challenges as you were printing parts? Were there issues with the machine that needed ironing out and was it 
trial and error? Did you have to kind of rely on your own skills developing to get the best out of the machines as you went? Um, certainly, uh, the first machines that we produced were not producing output that was as good as the best commercial machines. Uh, on the other hand, the first machine we produced cost about £400 in components, uh, whereas the machine that I mentioned that we used as the basis of it cost £40,000 when we bought it. So that's a dropping cost by a factor of 100, not 100%, yeah. a factor of 100. Um, so uh, the fact that it wasn't producing quite such good output didn't seem to put people off very much because, you know, you could have a room full of them for the cost of a single other machine. Um, so, uh, yeah, the quality wasn't good, but it improved and it improved largely by trial and error, as you as, as implied by your question. Um, and we were a university, so we did actually do some calculations as well. Um, another one of my research students um, did some finite element analysis on the, the heat flow in the nozzles and all that sort of thing. So um, we did do a certain amount of modeling and prediction as well as trial and error. Uh, as with most engineering projects, it was a combination of, of the two. And obviously this movement spawned a, you know, a market of consumer machines, professional machines, industrial machines, you know, the, the market of desktop printers today remains um, a very competitive space. You have the likes of yep. MakerBot, Prusa, Ultimaker, you know, plenty mm -hmm. of others. Um, yeah. What did you make of the of the rise of, of those companies with, you know, their own takes on, on what you guys have been doing, their own FDM machines? You know, form labs come not long after with a an, S mm -hmm. an SLA system, a desktop form factor. Yeah. What was your impression of of that kind of you know well, movement after your own? I I expected it to happen because if you put the information out there uh, for a machine costing hundred pounds, four hundred pounds, and that's competing with the machine, not forty thousand pounds at the time it's competing, but ten thousand pounds, let's say. Um, clearly, people are going to see a gap in the market. And so I expected both commercial companies to adopt what we'd done. Well, we gave it away free, so there's nothing we could do to stop them. Not even sure I wanted to stop them. Um, but also private individuals uh, started using the machines. And indeed, many of the companies you just mentioned were actually started by people who built their own machines as, as a hobby activity and then said, oh, I can do more than one of these. Let's get on with it. Um, Prusa famously uh, has a large print farm full of what are essentially RepRap machines printing the components from the RepRap machines that he sells. Um, mm. Lullsbot similarly in, in the United States. Um, and I, it, it has both advantages and disadvantages from the perspective of a large company. The significant advantage is that if you've got a design improvement, it can go into the line almost immediately. Um, because all you're doing is changing a G-code file, ultimately driving the machines. Um, the, the disadvantage is, of course, that you need a very large number of machines, which require a certain amount of attention. But that disadvantage turns into an advantage. What it means is, because it requires attention to keep lots of machines going, you've got a very powerful incentive to make them as absolutely reliable as possible and to do sensible things when there's a power cut and to do sensible things when the filament runs out and all that sort of stuff so that you don't lose production when those circumstances occur. So having a large print farm, actually, if your print farm is also the machines that you sell, forces you to make a good machine. Mm. Obviously, the RepRap Pro business was 
you know another of those of those companies yep. um, we thought we'd start yeah and uh, it ran for a while but then we decided we we simply couldn't compete with the the people who'd in some cases started earlier but who'd grown bigger than us. um one of the things we did with that company was we resolved at the beginning not to borrow any money um so uh the whole company was driven by its own profits and we didn't go to the bank and say give us a hundred thousand pounds please um and i suspect that we grew rather more slowly than we otherwise would have done uh had had we had we made a different decision but on the other hand it did mean that we weren't beholden to anybody that there was no one breathing down our neck telling us what to do so that was quite quite convivial um uh, we 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 didn't close the company we sold it to a chinese company who used it to do something different with but um uh they in fact rather amusingly they they paid us as consultants after they bought the company to um uh to advise them in the design of a machine um and we said well hang on you're buying this company but all the stuff that we're producing is entirely open source everything that Rab Rab Pro did was open source um all the information is there you, you go and get us for it and, uh, but they said oh no we'd, we'd rather pay you just to just to get your point of view you know so anyway they did which was very kind of them um yeah so the company ran for a while and my daughter and i still have a little company called rep rap limited which we largely use for consultancy and things 3d printing and electronics and software and so on um uh that that's potters along it we have no desire of making it 50, 50 employees or anything we it just gives us something to do and it it makes a little bit of money which is always nice and um uh we don't have to work at it particularly hard which is equally nice um <laughs> one of the latest things that we branched out into is, is acting as expert witnesses for court cases there's an awful lot of court cases in america famously the most litigious society on earth um, many of them centering around 3d printing patent issues and so on um so it's uh it's it seems potentially as if it might be rather boring to have to read through a whole load of court documents but actually it turns out to be rather interesting when they're technical <laughs> documents. um and it, it's also got the added advantage that uh, we can uh, charge for our work on that sort of thing not what engineers normally charge but what lawyers normally charge mm. um when we started this my daughter said to me no don't put in a bill for what you uh, normally ask for uh, find out what American lawyers pay themselves and put in a bill for that um, so <laughs> so that's what we did um, and uh, that that has been reasonably successful as well mm. so in terms of you mentioned there that you know when you had the RepRap Pro business you, you decided not to go looking for, for loans and, and raise money is there yeah. any element of regret when you see you know a lot of the other companies we've we've discussed um have gone down that route um of raised you know millions and millions to to back yeah. it is there any regret that you didn't go down that route or no not for i can't speak for anybody else but not from me personally it was an interesting thing everybody who worked for the company is now doing other things many of them are still working in 3d printing for other companies so um they weren't particularly disadvantaged by the fact that the our own particular company closed down um so uh I, I don't regret it. I, I knew it was going to happen sooner or later, simply in the nature of uh, a self-reproducing machine. Um, in the long term, 
it's got to be the case that that causes people continually to turn over and companies that are involved in it to continually be, be being replaced by people coming up from the bottom. So, you know, uh, I, it happened more quickly than I thought it would, but, uh, but it, it, the fact that it happened was not a particular surprise to me. Mm. Obviously, as we, as we mentioned, you know, the, the research that you and your colleagues um, did in, in this RedRap project allowed you know an entire market of, of desktop 3d printer manufacturers to exist um yeah. and then when you i guess when you think about your initial motivations a lot of what happened since then is you know out of your control you know due to the nature of open source and technology what what do you make then of of where the desktop 3d printing market is i guess from a technology perspective and from an affordability perspective these days is it where you would hope it it, it would be by this stage um yeah but I, I i i don't i don't i don't really hope things uh, <laughs> I was, that sounds terribly depressing i i don't have a direction that i'd like to see that this particular world move in uh, i'm much more interested to see where it moves and why it moves uh, i going back to the biology thing again i'm i'm interested in observing it as a naturalist might observe something rather than uh directing it as a, a normal company engineer might direct their company um so may, maybe i'm a bit eccentric in that regard but mm-hmm. i i i mean i'm i'm interested to watch what happens to it i'm not particularly uh in favor of one particular direction as opposed to another at the uh, recent Sanjay Mortimer Rep Rap Festival um, in, in December 2023, yeah. um, you gave a, a keynote speech on on AI and 3D printing, um, which is obviously, um, there's a lot of hype going around AI at the moment, 3D printing, no stranger to that kind of hype. What impact do you think AI can have on, on 3D printing or, or where, you know, as you as you look at the two technologies today, where do you think they they make sense to kind of, combine and to work together. Yes, I, I, I tried to acknowledge the hype by the title of my talk, which was, look, a bandwagon, <laughs> AI and 3D printing. Um, uh, so um, uh, yes, uh, obviously when any new technology comes along, it's, it's rather gratifying and a rather positive thing about human nature that people get enthusiastic about it but it's also in the nature of human enthusiasm that it runs off in all sorts of different directions many of which will turn out subsequently to be unproductive um now having said that um ai is a general tool in the same way that a computer is a general tool a clock is as a very specific tool it tells the time a computer is not like a clock a computer is a thing that you, you can use to do almost anything if you put your mind to it Similarly, with intelligence, we have an existence proof that intelligence is extraordinarily widely applicable. It's what human beings do with the contents of our own heads. Um, So uh, we know that intelligence allows you to do all sorts of things that, as human beings, that uh, cats and uh, chameleons and cows can't do. Um, So obviously, AI is going to change pretty much everything and the more advanced it gets the more it will change simply because it gives us an alternative uh, intelligence on the planet that's not yet equal to our own of course but that is now visibly going to become equal to our own in the fairly near future and I don't see any reason why it won't radically impact 3d printing 
in in addition to all the other places it is going to invent. My own talk about it was using AI to to a certain extent to replace the designer, um, just as current AI systems like Midjourney are not necessarily completely replacing graphic artists, but they certainly generate remarkable pieces of two-dimensional artwork. Um, and nobody can nobody nobody can deny that, and indeed that's causing a certain amount of friction with traditional artists, unsurprisingly. Um, so I don't see any reason why AI systems shouldn't design three-dimensional objects in much the same way that Midjourney designs two-dimensional pictures uh, from a textual description given to them by a human being. Now, we're not quite there yet, but one of the things I wanted to do in my talk was to show technically one particular route by which that might, have been, might be achieved, um, uh, which is not to say that it's something that has been done yet, as I just indicated. Um, to, to finish off, Adrian, and, and thank you uh, for your time today. Um, you've obviously spent uh, many years as an, as an academic. You've been involved in, you know, a, a movement um, that's resulted in a in a company, which you know, obviously, you mentioned still runs today, and um, mm. it's helping to keep you busy. What, if any, and I, I know you said that you don't hope things. What <laughs> remaining ambitions or, or motivations do you have at this stage? Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. so ambitions is like hopes. I, I, I try to avoid them where I can. I, I, someone once when I was a, now I'm a horribly old man, but once when I was a young man, someone asked me what my ambition was. And I said, my ambition was to retire, not having decided what I wanted to be when I grew up. Um, and uh, that, that more or less achieved that, though, I did actually have a real job was <laughs> teaching students and doing actual engineering research. But um, I, I. I, I don't have a scheme for what direction things want want to go in, or even that I want to go in myself. Obviously, like any human being, I like to have a reasonably comfortable life. I like a roof over my head and food to eat, and uh, and so on and so forth. And I'll, again, like almost all human beings, I like to have something interesting to do. And I'm in the extraordinarily happy position that I have all those things. I've, I've got a, a sensible pension from when I was an academic, and I've got. Uh, I've got plenty to do because I've got a small workshop of my own in which I can make things, try out ideas, design pieces of electronics, write computer software, build things with 3D, 3D printers we've got and so on. And that certainly is something that makes me content. So I don't have any desire to move away from what I'm currently doing. So no direction. I want to stay still. <laughs> <laughs>